Night falls on the golden age of humanity. Sons shall turn upon their father, and his worlds drown in blood. The eye shall open, and the galaxy will burn. Join us, listeners. We go into the canon lore of the Forge World Black Books on Heresy Grad School. Professors Jason, Patrick, and Dave, myself, will dive into the lore of the Black Books and the Black Library novels that we know and love and explore the heresy as history. So get a coffee, get your notebook out, and uh, prepare to explore heresy as history with us on Heresy Grad School. Well, never going to get used to that. I know. What I you mean, mean, we say it every single episode, but I'm still never going to get used to that. So, uh, welcome everybody to another episode of Heresy Grad School and the other members retreat. Uh, doing some more awesome Corona deeps, uh, deep diving. Uh, we're going to go back over a couple pages and and kind of just get into the meat and potatoes of Port Ma. Uh, I think. Let's see, uh, Jason. I think we're actually going to start out with uh, the jealousy of the Black Mages, right? On uh, page forty. That is page forty, Pat. Oh. All right, guys, girls, robot, whatever. Beep boop. Let's talk about Cyclothrate. So these guys are kind of interesting so far as Forge Worlds go. Horus has got this entire plan, which I think is tactical genius, uh, to kind of subvert the entirety of the Mechanicum to his cause. And as he does this, he has massive power in Mars, just literally the largest production facility for arms, equipment, armor, in the known universe uh, at Horace's beck and call. And, but not only does he have the large, very large production ca- capabilities of Mars and all of the uh, directly subsorbing of Forge Worlds, he also is kind of hedging his bets a little bit with some of the smaller Forge Worlds, uh, Cyclothrate being one of them. Now, it is a smaller Forge. It doesn't have anywhere near the production capacity of uh, something like Mars or Zana, even something uh, like we've talked before about Sar. Uh, this is much, much smaller. But uh, this is uh, sort of a backup for Horus. This is kind of like a secondary supply base because Cyclothrate was never that in line with Mars. Um, they were always pretty independent and little Zima xenophobic and isolationist even before uh the whole heresy deal and uh they didn't agree that well with mars to begin with. so uh mars itself uh wasn't a big fan of cyclothrate they had to uh step in at several points uh you know swinging their you know weight of imperial law and authority around kind of check what cyclothrate was trying to do uh which i think is a pretty good way to explain like mars is constantly sort of back and forth uh, with the Treaty of Olympus and their agreement with the Emperor, uh, there are plenty of Majos on Mars that are kind of pushing the boundaries of what's quote-unquote legal under that Treaty of Olympus that they've signed uh, to kind of rein in the research. And so there are definitely some, uh, we'll call them progressive Majos, that are out there uh, kind of testing the limits of what they can do. But even then, uh, Mars has had to step in officially to Cyclothrate and say like, hey guys, Back it up a bit. We're getting out there. So they're not the biggest fan of Cyclothrate to start. And um, even as uh, Horus is kind of corrupting, quote unquote, the Martian Mechanicum as a whole, he's really making it a point to kind of befriend and offer special privileges to some of these smaller, far-flung forges that didn't quite agree with Mars. And I think his planning here was, again, to kind of hedge those bets. If, in case, the entire Mars thing goes tits up, he'll totally have, you know, some backup. Now, uh, this can also be seen in places like Asarum, Esteban III, uh, Zana, which we're totally going to have to get through at some point because it's one of my personal favorites. But they're these secondary lines of supply and they're not dependent on Mars itself. It sets up that supply redundancy. And uh, even though Mars is not 
um, it's not great for loyalists, no matter how you look at it. Like, even if they conquered it the next day, it would be a massive undertaking for them. But uh, these smaller forges are getting kind of a backup. So Cyclothraith may not have that huge industrial output, but they bring, uh, they say, more unique powers into the traders' resources. Uh, the traders at large offer freedom to research whatever they want as long as they deliver arms armor and recognize Horus's authority. And even long before the outbreak of the heresy itself, Horus had really groomed Cyclothrae, uh, had kind of facilitated their expansion to acquire resources stockpile, uh, legions of battle automata they were building up for years and decades even before the outbreak. Uh, two, uh, siege engines were another big export of theirs, kind of unbeknownst to Mars or the Imperium, and they were stockpiling all of these war robots, siege engines, resources, what have you, uh, as kind of a small contingency plan. But I think it was a pretty good idea on the side of Horus to uh, kind of hedge those bets and make sure your uh, forge coverage is redundant. Hey, Jason, um... I just want to take this chance to uh, go and tell our listeners to check out page 76 of uh, book four, um, which really gets into um, Cyclothrafe and the Cyclothrafine holdfast. Uh, this is fascinating stuff. This is the sort of this is what I talked about before, right? It's the compendium that supports the coronated deeps, the principal worlds of. And I'll just read this this little bit about Cyclothrafe. Um, the classification is a grade tertius two for Forge World. And it says that uh, Cyclothrafe sits at the center of the massacred home worlds of a once powerful Xenos empire, never itself inhabited by the Medu conglomerate, likely owing to the savage energies that plague it. Cyclothrafe is a forlorn and turbulent world. And uh, it goes on to say some pretty cool shit, man. Um, apparently there was a uh, Mechanicum Warbark uh, that was badly damaged in the final battle against the Xenos. Uh, and the name of that was the Cyclopean Mine. And from the wreck of this warship... Um, basically came the Cyclothrafian host, right? They're just the survivors of this uh, crashed Mechanicum Warbark. And um, it's, 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 a, it's a pretty good read. It's a, it's a good description. And I don't know, Jason, if you were um, going to tell our listeners what about the Cyclothrafian uh, host stands out. But there's a pretty cool description um, on page 35. I'll just read it real quick, guys. Sorry, let me get to it. Um, but uh, no, not page 35. Jealousy of the Blacks. Page 40? Yeah. Yes. So it says, um, born not of ancient history, but rather some of the darkest and most horrifying conflicts of the Great Crusade, and long withdrawn into secret ways and the study of the arcane. They were recognized by their strange arachnid symbol and their robes, not of Martian crimson, but of the deepest heart's blood and sable, and by the fathomless storm cloud hues which adorned their servants and engines of war. Just, a, ah, just man, that made me go hunting actually for uh for that that uh, arachnid symbol and i was able to find it on page 77 uh there's a castellax battle automata that uh, is part of the cyclo three uh tagmata and it has on one shoulder the uh arachnid symbol of uh the Cyclo three theme tagmata so badass I fucking want it um I want Forge World to make transfers but I know that'll never happen uh but we can only hope right yeah I mean I mean if not there are ways Pat there are I, ways. I mean believe me I I know there are ways um <laughs> so uh no Jason that that was that was awesome and and you know we had to introduce. Uh, we had to introduce Cyclothrafe at some point because they're they're pretty pivotal in uh, really the rest of uh, Hornet Deeps. I mean, Forge World made a model for their Archmages, so I mean, Did they're they? definitely important. Yeah, uh, Archmages uh, Dravik or Drakavik. Right? Drakavik. There you go. The guy who's got like the the skull helm and all the weird uh technically bits trailing in the back yeah yeah you're right i guess they yeah. did i just never see that guy played as arch 
Magos Drakevac or however you say his name. Like, like he's a badass model. I just never see anyone like roll out with his special rules. Yeah. Jay, Jason, you're our resident mech player. Does is he any good? So I have him, and it's not. He's very uh, unique. Like a lot of the other Mechanicum special characters, he's very uh, eccentric. I guess would be the way to describe him. Situational, maybe. Yeah. So he's got that wacky converter shield, which nobody, I think, nobody's really sure how to use. But I mean, it's an amazing model, but like. I think almost every other Mechanicum player, I immediately got the model, like built it, painted it, shelved it, and then built my own Magus. Well, he's he's um he's one of only two special characters that you guys actually have models for, right? Don't quote me on it, but I think so. I mean, I think um who's who's the big one that just came out, the enormous one? Oh, Anacaris Scoria. Yeah, Scoria, right? So I mean, I feel like it's Scoria and this guy, uh, Dracovic, and I don't think there are any other um characters that have like exclusive sculpt yeah that's true um oh wait you know what that's frustrating it's not dracovac that has the repulsor shield before we get an email it's uh what's <laughs> yeah. the other guy uh sartarial he Oof. has the wacky uh, repulsor shield dracovac is the right anyway. uh sorry uh blinked out for a second there uh, he's the one with the high techno arcana, um, Saratoga, where, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, his automata can gain plus one to their charge distances and sweeping advances. And I mean, is he not bad? It's just, I think most mechanical players like building their own. And I mean, for his points, you can always kit out your own majos to be just so much better. Yeah. He does have a paragon blade, though, which is pretty nice for a... Uh, yeah, for a stock Magos, that's nice. I guess Arch Magos, but... Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, that is some good tips for building uh, some some Mechanicum powerful characters. Um, I mean, let's be honest, they're all powerful. But, uh, but definitely, Jason is the expert in more than just lore. He is uh, he's the expert in our uh, Mechanicum uh, builds as well, but... Uh, we'll save that for another. Uh, Jason, the the Cyclothraithy host and the Cyclothraithan holdfast is is really important as we get into Port Ma and the treachery at Port Ma because they're sort of the linchpin in in Horus's plan, right? Like they, they are, yeah, definitely are. Uh, they are actually uh, Archmagus Mercuric is Cyclothraith, and they are in charge of the Panopticon Control Tower. Plays a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's a huge deal. Well, let's uh, get into that business then. Uh, Explain why Port Ma itself is such a uh, huge deal, and what went on to, uh, I mean, a little bit of a spoiler alert, it is a lame loyalist victory, sort of. But some good stuff happens along the way. I would say it's a. It, I would say it's a. a what do they call it? A, a, a fearic pure yeah, victory. Fearic victory. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Boo, but, uh, loyalist. <laughs> well, we, I'm a we, loyalist. We, we talked about uh, last time, Jason. We talked about how um, important command and c- control is for um, the loyalists. So. so so as the the Death Guard fleet sort of materializes out of the you know the void, and uh, you know the the Port Ma Armada, which remains largely loyalist, really, despite Horus's best efforts to sort of subvert it from from inside. Um, that really command and control is what is going to make the difference here. Like if if Admiral Labray um, is able to. Uh, coordinate the combined forces of the Port Ma Armada. Um, he would he would actually be a significant threat to uh, Mortarian's fleet. And uh, that really, what what has to happen is uh, like like we've seen so far, right? It's just chaos and confusion, and you're dismantling uh, the ability for the loyalists to resist from from within, right? You're just taking away their um, their nodes of control, and really, it's it's so this. I love the treachery at Port Maw because it happens in really almost three different spheres, right? It happens within Port Maw, it happens on the decks of each ship, and it happens um, sort of at, at large um, 
within sort of command, like Admiral LeBray's command role. So it's uh it's it's a it's a good story. All right, without further ado, Jason, I'll let you get into it. All right. Well, no, that was a pretty big, good uh, prelude, a little bit of a foreword. So let's see here. Port Maw itself. So like we were talking about last time, this is one of the Segmentum Armada holdfasts. This is where ships for the entire Segmentum are coordinated, controlled, sent out in these defensive fleets that uh, we were talking about last time that have been kind of downsized from the massive battleships of the Crusade fleets to smaller, more practical, uh, almost like police escort ships. So, but uh, Port Ma is basically where every single ship that this segmentum has summoned to attempt to repel the Death Guard. They're finally getting their shit together. The Death Guard has managed to isolate and annihilate pretty much everything except uh, the Mazoan Forge World uh, that they've run across up until now. But this is supposed to be where every single ship is going to get together they're going to pile into mortarian's fleet and hopefully good things are going to happen uh so port ma itself is the control center here as well as like a dock a supply station rearmament and it's absolutely choked with ships um they have mentioned more than a score of battleships dozens of cruisers hundreds of escort vessels and these are just the combat vessels there are thousands upon thousands of servitor man tenders of supply and support ships uh things like troop transports orbital lighters and a lot of reinforcements are coming in um specifically from agathon uh they're designated pirate killers probably escorts and the like um from the serata nebula and on top of that We've got three war arcs from Cyclothray. So we talked a little bit about the war arcs last what was going on. But um, on top of that, you have entire fleets worth of refugees coming from the battles in the Cyclops cluster, uh, much the same way as the Astartes were fleeing Istvan. Uh, now you've got Astartes mixed in with mercantile vessels, with mining transports, ore haulers, uh, near crippled warships. Uh, some are still... Uh, from as far as Istvan. Now, uh, not a lot of these Astartes vessels really stay long. They just kind of re-equip and move on into the solar system. Uh, some are so badly damaged that they're actually stopped by the Port Ma Authority, and uh, they're scuttled and deactivated and then kind of set adrift out on the system edge so they don't pose a threat these just scores and scores of ships that are choking the lanes at Port Ma. And uh, Port Ma, its entire operation, all of these hundreds and thousands of ships are controlled by what's called the Mechanicum Astra Control Panopticon. This is a 10-kilometer-tall broadcast tower at Port Ma's central southern pole. So it relays fleet orders, you know, beacon signals, navigation coordinates, things like that. Think of it like a super intense aircraft control tower in 3D. Well, more 3D, less gravity. But uh, it organizes and controls the flow of data to the helms of every single one of those ships currently interacting with Port Ma. And the big thing with it, too, is it controls and conducts the traffic patterns and the uh, collision prevention for all those hundreds of ships as well. So Port Ma Authority takes no chances early on. Uh, they recognize that's a huge liability. And uh, they say they've proofed it against treachery by complete replacements of their uh, ciphers and data encryption following the news of Horace's betrayal. And then again, after uh, news of Istvan starts drifting back towards them. Now, uh, this is pretty pertinent because both the 4th and the 19th Legion have a lot of fleet assets lay over at Port Ma as they were en route to Istvan V. Now, between the 4th Legion and the 19th Legion, uh, that you know, showing up at Istvan V had radically different outcomes, but uh, both of those Astartes fleets had received the updated schedules, code, shipping, things like that, and they were considered compromised, so they were replaced wholesale. Now, uh, the Port Mar Armada Command believed their uh, void auguries and their override systems were impregnable, which might have been the case if it weren't for a certain Archmagus, um, a guy named Light Mercuric. So this guy is kind of a problem. Uh, he, unbeknownst to everybody, uh, he is an Archmagus Astral, uh, is his specific designation, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, Forge Roll keeps a pretty good trend on how they name their Archmagi. Uh, Archmagos Astral is different from an Archmagos Navis, which is different from an Archmagos Explorer. Yet all three of which interact uh, wholesale with the Imperialis Armada 
and uh, fleet assets of the Mechanicum at large. So this guy, uh, he's the cyber coordinator of Port Maw, and he has already secretly thrown in his business with Horus. Uh, he is essentially the center of this entire sort of web across the Manichaean Commonwealth. Um, it's extended not only to his acolytes, but even into several officer groups of Imperialis Armada. Uh, ostensibly, they're corrupted by sort of the same sort of brotherhood and warrior lodges that are active uh, in the Sons of Horus and the Word Bearers. And it's specifically the sons and the bearers that are sort of blamed with uh, infecting these uh, human companies that are s and uh, support elements that serve alongside them. But on top of that, you also have to worry about just the general um, sort of general human nature. Uh, they mentioned several were uh, issues from bribes, uh, dissent fear, or just general ambition in the command cadre for promotion. And even then, uh, spies and saboteurs were stealing the identities of, you know, ship staff and inserting themselves. Now, uh, overall, like you were mentioning earlier, the trader forces were pretty tiny compared overall to what was allied and brought together at Port Moth. But they were all very strategically placed by uh, Horus's agents far in advance. Here. Um, compared to sort of the steamroller of the Cyclops cluster, uh, this is a lot more subtle, but it's uh, a lot more insidious as well. Now, you're good, Jason. Um, I would like to say uh, the Archmajor's Astra is actually a she, not a, not a he. Oh, wait, really? I yep. totally... Uh, steamroll that. Page 41, uh, second paragraph, actually. Uh, this conspiracy had many layers and many agencies were bound up within it. From the traitors, uh, traitor Archmajos Astria McCurick and her acolytes. Oh, snap. You are yeah. correct. Good, good catch, Pat. Though. It's okay. Just keeping y'all straight. <laughs> uh, my sincere apologies. That is a uh... hey. It's just one of those many many ways we avoid uh, angry Facebook messages. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, listeners. We swear. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's talk here about uh, this little section called Blade in Dark. So uh, things are going down at Manashea Vice today. So this is the power and seat of governance in the Commonwealth. Uh, it's not great. Nobody really knows exactly what's going on, but everybody's on high alert. It's almost a repeat of what was going on in the Cyclops cluster. Nobody knows what's happening. Alarms are going off. The PDF is at full alert. Millions of vehicles going on. Billions of infantry. Uh, the most vital areas being reinforced by the Solar Auxilia. You got things like transport terminals, spaceports, generator stations, uh, those little block fortresses that the arbitrators love to set up. And at uh, Hive Ilium, which is the seat of governance for the uh, Manichea Visidae, which is itself kind of the command of the system itself, uh, <clears throat> there's this uh, thing called the Palace of Light. And it's this large, uh, it's this fortified government hive spine. Uh, where pretty much all the bureaucracy, all the command decisions, everything goes down. So the Imperial Commander and the entire Lord Protector of the uh, Manishan Commonwealth are in attendance. And uh, a guy named Pyramus Beckett, a born patrician whose noble line had ruled this world since the Age of Strife, could do nothing but look on in disbelief and dawning terror at what was displayed in the holo ocularis, which lit up the space of the echoing amphitheater uh all of his staff doesn't know what's going on uh the tech priest strategos that are trying to feed them sensor data uh they're arguing with each other they're arguing with their own data streams uh it's a big problem because what they're reading can't possibly be true uh there is a massive fleet incoming uh the very stars of the night skies over visaday were being blotted out by warships of the enemy approaching and despite this, the orbital mines had not detonated, and the defense monitors had not answered Voxhale, although they appeared to sail on serene and oblivious to the danger on the Auspex scanners. So, uh, yet again, this is something that everybody outside the Manishan Commonwealth doesn't really know that much about. Uh, this was only found when forces... Uh, coming back through during the scouring, we're digging these things up and figuring out like exactly how bad this was. Um, so nobody really knows why uh, the orbital mines aren't going off. The defense monitors are not engaging or even seeming to acknowledge 
uh, they're just kind of gormlessly sailing on and not responding to the enemy fleet. Uh, Horus's fleet, however, in the complete opposite direction, is showing coordination across like warp transit lanes that really shouldn't have been possible. Uh, everybody that's spent any time in 40 or 30k in lore understands that warp travel is really fickle. Uh, it's not the first choice. I mean, that's the entire reason a huge part of it, the Emperor wanted to seal off humanity from the warp in the first place. Uh, warp travel is pretty terrible. You're basically rolling the dice and show up a week before you left for your destination, or you could show up centuries later than you intended to. It's not great. Uh, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. But uh, the problem here, nobody knows how he's doing it, but Horus is coordinating these fleet actions uh, over a matter of weeks, uh, which is precision that by these standards is like impossibly razor sharp. And with the Death Guard fleet, with the Sons of Horus fleet, all of these are showing up over worlds with that razor-sharp precision. So, uh, got all sorts of little dramas going on as well. Uh, there's like, a, oh, over the frontier world of Sabina. This is kind of interesting. Uh, there's this little relief convoy of escort frigates that just uh, straight open fire on the uh, cruisers they were scheduled to resupply, uh, taking out ships, you know much larger than they are and uh then when they destroy them uh they open fire on the planet uh sabinus that they were supposed to be protecting in the first place and just kind of level their cities and fly off into the dark uh nobody really knows why uh on the mining world of uh i'm gonna say chrysa uh that uh if you'll remember way back when uh at dominica minor uh, their mainline battleship, the Spear of Umbriel, was destroyed by a Death Guard ship called the Fourth Horseman. So this thing shows back up again over this mining world. And it's a little teeny planetoid. It was colonized for these open-cast carbines. Uh, kind of similar to what was on Dominica Minor itself, it sounds like. But uh, the Fourth Horseman unleashes an entire company of Grave Warden Terminators on this poor, sad little bastard of a mining planet, uh, just teleports them directly into the gallery levels of the miner and worker hat. And over the next month or so, they basically purge the planetoid of all life. So it was big enough to take an entire company of Grave Warden Terminators a solid month to annihilate every single living thing on that rock. Uh, let's see. What else we got? Oh! Uh, this is where uh, Cyclothraith makes a little bit of an appearance to uh, a planet called Numenol. Uh, more than a hundred of their vessels show up from the warp and demand the immediate surrender. Uh, let's see. And, um, oh, that reminds me. Pat, your, uh, your nighthouse. Therion. Yeah, this is the first mention of them. Um, they essentially, uh, let's see. Uh, so let me find the, the spot real quick. Um, so on a colony world called uh, Bradak Junction, I guess, uh, essentially the majority or part of uh, the Night House, I always butcher this, so I prefer to say their Logothic name, but uh, Arthogen, uh, essentially just show up and start plundering and enslaving, which which was what um, they were doing when Horus found them. And 100% like just makes me so happy about their lore because like in Proto- in proto-gothic they're called the Rackendor, which is the pilgrims of ash and blood and they were just known to just level worlds and for for, for, for slaves and and they all sorts of stuff hey jason can i just jump in here for one second absolutely um because i think what what you've just absolutely described very nicely as the precision strikes over many light years of, um, you know, the traitor vessels, be they Sons of Horus, Death Guard, um, the Tagmata Cyclothraith. That is all captured on page 43 uh, in the bottom half of that page. Very nicely on the sort of the, uh, the star chart that we have there. Um, you can see the different fleet makeups and you can see sort of where they originate from and how they are just... Um, you know, in precision coordination, taking out the key planets, the, the key imperial planets of resistance. Um, and some of we don't even get mentioned, right? So we've got, uh, we've got the Sons of Horus taking out, uh, Crixia and then, uh, Sub, uh, Subnius, and then we've got rogue traders striking grave. Um, so I, I mean, there's just so much depth 
that uh, the Forge World design team has given us here, um, you know, both in narrative and on the map to explore. And then we get even more uh, depth on um, page 56. We're skipping ahead a little bit, but want to give the listeners a, a tease um, that the, the battle is not over. Um, so you can see sort of how they, they go about, uh, the traders go about taking taking down the Manichaean Commonwealth, um, you know, and then on their way, obviously, to the prize, uh, which is uh, the throne world and uh, Segmentum Solar. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it is exactly what you were talking about, Jason. It's, it's what Horus, it's why he's the war master, right? Nobody else can do what Horus does, which is the precision coordinated attacks over subsectors and star systems. Um, I mean, that's why he's the war master, man. I mean, he, nobody else is better at, at uh, you know, galactic violence than he is. He does get that business done. <laughs> Indeed he does. He does yeah. Cool. All right. So, yeah, page 43, sexy. Uh, Jason, back to you. All right. So <clears throat> let's talk about the wolves of war here. So, again, things aren't going great for uh, the Vice a day. Uh, they're only just starting to figure out what's going on as their planetary defenses are opening up at their maximum range and engaging this encroaching fleet. Uh, the This fleet has somehow bypassed the system's outer defense ring just entirely uh, because they're, they've come from a sector that nobody was expecting, uh, which would be the warplanes from the galactic west or south. These are coming directly from a northern shipping channel, which is a lane exclusive to Port Mall. Uh, they've figured out now these ships are broadcasting identification ciphers from Port Mall, uh, which is why the picket ships and the servitors and the mines didn't respond to them uh, as hostile uh, threats. And uh, <clears throat> when beyond visual range, which is pretty much, you know, every time you're not docking or attempting to ram something in Starship terms, uh, there's no way for them to tell other than these ciphers. Uh, it allows these enemy ships to get very close uh, to range for boarding torpedoes, dreadclaws, assault craft, things which Astartes vessels are absolutely going to outmatch anything of, uh, that the mortals have to try and repel. So all of these assault ships are running as cold as possible. Uh, once they've been launched, the boarding torpedoes, the dread claws, assault rams, uh, the castus, things like that. Uh, they don't have active power, and they're essentially dumb-fired rockets uh, that conceals their approach from a shorter range. And they manage to attack a bunch of orbital gun platforms, a lot of these defense monitor and picket ships, virtually unopposed. And once you've got, like, as a mortal commander, once you've got Astartes, like, all up in your ships, like, undercarriage, it's never a good uh that's never going to be something that ends well uh <clears throat> there was that one ship at uh istvan 3 the sunstone where they managed to hang out like you know hold off the emperor's children for hours before self-destructing but you know that was the emperor's children so now as the fleet closes in on manashea they can finally start to determine some identities past these uh sort of ciphers they've stolen and it's a big deal because uh it's a real rogues gallery of Sons of Horus ships. Uh, they're all heavy, like, uh, warships of the 16th Legion. Uh, the Desolation, the Oblivion, Goreprow, uh, the Bone Jackal is called out specifically, which is interesting because they just kind of um, casually toss it in uh, as well in the same list, the King Eater, uh, which is Abaddon's personal battle barge. Jason, uh, when you told me that the King Eater that's badass and i immediately asked you i was like how do we know that and uh i can't i can't remember how you how you explained it oh because it literally says at the battle of high of ilium that, uh a couple pages later i think it starts on i want to say page 48 that um abaddon uh on his personal battle barge the king eater uh jumps on high of ilium yeah yeah i'm reading it right now that is awesome yeah so uh, we now know what Abaddon's battle barge was. Badass. I love how they just casually toss it in there with all the others. It's not even the one that gets called out as being the infamous one. Uh, that would <laughs> right. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So we've got, um, it, is the fourth, the fourth horseman is, is that Typhon's battle barge? That's is not that? Typhon's battle barge. That's the Terminus Est. Okay. 
The fourth horseman is that uh, Death Guard warship that killed uh, the mainline battleship at Dominica Minor, uh, the Spear of Umbriel. Okay, that's right. That's right. Yeah, Typhon's on the Terminus Est. So it's Do definitely we... a ship that's like on the Loyalist radar, but not quite the Terminus Est. Yeah. Oh, it's just so much. There's so much good stuff here, man. Little little uh, nuggets to uh, to speculate on. I mean, I know Stephen wanted to go down the rabbit hole on like all of these, and I had to uh, reel them in. <laughs> <laughs> we could have been here for days, man. But uh, no, it's it's. I love it. It's awesome. So, uh, what I wanted to talk about a little bit before we moved on is this little teeny box out on forty three called the Path of the Damned. Um, this kind of interested me, and I think it's good to spend a little bit of time on because uh, it kind of builds a little bit more of that uh, sort of picture of warp travel. Um, and again, it really touches on uh, let's see the plane of attack taken from the Warmasters forces of the Galactic North, and uh, just how difficult it is to coordinate such massive action through the warp like that. Uh, it speaks on how there are sort of tides, storms, uh, just like there would be on a, well, if Terra still had ocean, but uh, an ocean. Um, and it was really, uh, it explains how there are these channels through the warp uh, that are, you know, sort of little safe passages through there that are far less turbulent than normal uh, back and forth. And this is mainly how the corn and deeps themselves had been colonized kind of along an arcing uh, bounding section of these warp lanes and passages. Uh, it says predominantly arcing from the galactic east to the galactic west, roughly parallel to the northernmost border of the Ultima Segmentum. Uh, and two, to the direct galactic north of the Commonwealth itself is that uh, crazy coronid prohibited zone, which we talked a little bit about a few episodes ago. Uh, the, so what that means is from attacking from that uh, northern juncture that nobody was expecting from Port Ma to Manashea, uh, the Warmaster's fleet either circumnavigated that uh, prohibited zone or went through it, uh, neither one of which was thought to be possible because that uh, prohibited zone is something that blinds even astropaths. Like there is no way uh, for, well, at least any mortal uh, that anybody knows of to get through there other than literally blindly. Uh, and again, it was uh, the Warmaster was able to create this sort of element of surprise and take everybody off guard for his fleet's assaults that by traditional means weren't possible. So again, just another credit to the Warmaster here. So I, after reading this part, I've, I've always, or I was kind of wondering, do you think there is some, you know, Logar warp trickery going on with that? Because this is, this is pre, um, you know, Horus getting his, his demonic vigor, but. Um, yeah, I mean, this is pre-Molik, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is pre-Molik. I mean, everything the Imperial scholars in the Imperialis uh, uh, Armada knew up to that time said the Coronet prohibited zone was unpassable, could not do it. You'd have a huge you know, problem even skirting it to get around it. And Horus either skirted it and circumnavigated it or went straight through it. We don't know. But everything says that was impossible. I'm going to drop a Star Wars reference, but are you saying he did the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs? It's possible. I, I, I'm really not proud of that. I'm sorry, listeners. You, you can beat me later. <laughs> Can't cross genres, Pat. It's, it's rude. <laughs> it's rude. All right. So let's talk about uh, what's going down at Port Maw itself. It's been a long time coming. There's been a whole lot of... Uh, Whole lot of kicking around uh, various galactic bushes, but uh, this is the business. The Song of Chaos on page 44. So, uh, first thing to happen, a countdown set in motion long before uh, the Mechanicum Control Panopticon finally wound down to zero. There is a massive power surge across the Datagen web that causes a host of problems for ships, especially close in. Uh, Augury scanners cloud over with static Vox relays burnout. Auspexes are shut down to avoid uh, critical overexposure and destruction. Uh, essentially, the entire fleet, every single thing from the battleships down to like the tiny fleet tenders and rearming vessels are briefly blinded in the same moment. Uh, in that same moment, as soon as stuff starts slowly uh, coming back on, 
the navigational network that's been so precisely controlling all of these traffic maneuvers to keep everything stable. Uh, it starts sending out false reports and data and conflicting even between individual ships. So immediately there are collisions, there are ships accelerating without warning, um, like at, from a dead stop at the runway. Uh, sounds almost similar to what happened on Calf with Campany, uh, but just on a really large scale. And dozens of flagship bridges are just inundated with scrap code. So you've got on more uh, than a hundred mainline vessels, their systems have just failed and misfired in near paralysis. Uh, some are doing wacky things on the ships themselves, like venting whole decks to a hard vacuum. And uh, this is mentioned specifically to be an electromagnetic effect, and it's worse on smaller ships. And uh, things like the escorts, the merchantmen, the larger ships are a little bit protected by like their sheer size. They have more redundancy. Uh, and two, what's interesting, it mentions specifically the attack is blunted by the machine anima uh, of the ships themselves. Some of these ships that are larger and older, they have machine spirits even more potent and characterful than those seen in Titan. Because uh, these machines are bigger than Titans. Um, but the machine animas react to these as invaders uh, and kind of start to take action in some ships like on their own to the point they're overriding, burning out corrupted systems to uh, maintain control of their own uh of their own systems. But the problem here is even though those larger ships are more or less retaining control, albeit uh, you know slightly crippled in some aspects, uh, they find themselves almost immediately under fire from smaller ships that are supposed to be their allies. And a lot of these ships, they're not at a combat stance. They're at basically uh, like a zero dot. And um, a lot of these smaller vessels are uh, easier to take over and more vulnerable to mutinies, mutinies and boarding. And they're opening fire at essentially dead zero range with no warning. I mean, nobody has shields lit, nobody's expecting this, uh, and they're trying to cripple these major vessels, uh, and they're immediately uh, receiving, you know, messages demanding surrender. Uh, some ships are even, they're completely surrounded and have to comply. Uh, some, luckily, are neither surrounded nor particularly affected by the scrap code, and they manage to ignite shields and actually get onto a workable combat footing. Uh, on the actual Port Moss station itself, on that little planetoid, combat's already well underway and active between Loyalist and Traitor forces. Uh, several of the Provost Marshal station there have uh, put down armed mutinies among the mortal crew, and they've started rounding up uh, human Loyalists to lay siege to that command panopticon. And uh, the problem is, it's the obvious source of this malign broadcast, sending out like constant waves of uh, scrap code and uh, all of this conflicting uh, navigational data but they're not uh, they're locked down they're not responding to anything to any hails and these are provost marshals uh they're not they're they're really uh asking a lot of them these are not like hardline combat troops but fortunately for them uh stationed at port ma is a very large contingent of the 905th Lethe Cohort, uh, more colloquially known as the Ash Scorpions. So these guys are pretty hard-ass. Uh, they're pretty infamous as it goes. They're feral worlders, and they're hardened combat veterans before they're inducted into the, uh, the ranks of the Ash Scorpions. And even then, uh, these guys have been through a dozen campaigns, and they they pull no punches and uh, give negative one, negative one shits. Uh, they slice straight into the Panopticon itself with uh, melt-a-bombs and rapier batteries, and they are pushing corridor by corridor uh, against humans and uh, augmented thralls, both uh, towards the generatoria systems that are powering Panopticon. Now, uh, the defense itself gets more and more frenzied the farther in the Ash Scorpions get, and they have to uh, bring up flamers to scour... Uh, specifically homunculites and servo skulls. Now, thing to note here, uh, homunculites and servo skulls are starting to factor in here. They are not uh, mainline combat units that you normally see. These are things you normally see hanging out with uh, majos, like in their close retinue, like, you know, augment research to take notes, things like that. Uh, so the Mechanica Magi that are holding down this Panopticon are really hurling every single resource they have to try and stop the Scorpions. 
Yes. Um, if you remember, uh, you guys remember Master of Mankind, uh, the uh, little robo simian that Arkan Land has uh, developed. Uh, these magi are basically so desperate, they're sending like the little servo skulls and their artificimians out to uh, try and hold off the scorpions. So when the scorpions finally inevitably breach the generator vault, because servo skulls are not going to keep them out, uh, they're met by the tech priests that uh, tend these plasma generators. And much like uh, Terminator armor was originally developed for working in plasma generators, these tech priests are no pushovers. They are massively armored. Uh, they have massive weapon arrays and servo uh, fixtures. Specifically, well, I guess the weapons are, but the servo arrays are definitely, along with the armor, geared towards working on these massive plasma generators. On top of the fact that they have an entire uh, maniple of Castellax. So uh, <clears throat> these acolytes of Mercuric are basically her uh, direct subordinates. And they're up armored to deal with this radiation of these titan sized plasma coils. Now, this is powering entire control panopticon for Port Ma. These things are not small. It's not like you can just launch a rocket at them and knock them out. But uh, even the Ash Scorpions can't reliably stand up to these automata uh, without heavier weapons. Though they are digging in, they do pretty commendably for mortals against uh, automata that would give an Astartes company pause. So they're pushing these rapier destroyer batteries, their uh, laser destroyers, in and entrenching them. And they manage to off a single cast lapse. The rest of the scorpions at large charge, and they do manage to kick over another one with Volkite, even though they're losing literally dozens of guys. And they're not doing so hot on the numbers already. Uh, but they actually manage to make it through. A single Velatari Prime makes it to the command pulpit, and as the massively armored tech priests and automata are tearing him apart with their... Uh, crazy servo claws he manages to stab a control thing with a power saber luckily it was the right thing to stab and the backlash of energy vaporizes the automata uh dozens of guys still fighting on as these uh, emergency suppression protocols engage to try and keep these titan-sized plasma coils from overloading and going critical dude uh, uh, can we just can we just pause there for that is the most fucking heroic description of a mortal basically, you know, swaying the tide of galactic civil war, right? This single Veltari Prime, whose name has gone unrecorded, manages to force his way through tumult and slaughter to the dais of the control pulpit, right? He's already on fucking fire, dude. And he doesn't even... He's not even thinking about what's going on. He just pulls out his power saber and drives it into the heart of the machine as he's being torn apart. I mean, if that's not the fucking most grim, dark description of uh, of of just sacrifice and uh, yeah, war and everything that goes with it, I mean, I love this man. This to me is like this is the ultimate in the you know port maw uh the defense of port maw is this is the voltari sort of trying to make their way to the command deck the command panopticon and uh and just blanking out the signal that's uh the scrap code really that's 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 causing the ships um at high anchor to not do uh to communicate but uh at some point jason at some point we're gonna get together and you're gonna take your your mechanicum i'm gonna take my solar auxilia and we're gonna get a zone mortalis board we're, we are gonna we are gonna play this out uh consequently my mechanicum are even gray and gold like cyclic <laughs> completely accidental perfect no dude i this is awesome it is uh this passage is really what kind of sent me over the edge and got me into playing solar auxilium which is my first mortal army really i didn't even know that that's oh, yeah yeah fuck i mean book four right i mean book four is just it's so good so. there's so many great bits in book four like, it's really yeah. underappreciated but it's the business i'm a huge fan absolutely all right so after this poor unnamed Velatari Prime, the works the machinations 
of light mercuric and her entire entourage. Uh, the interference signal over Port Moth flickers and dies. So now that this uh, signal is no longer like blaring scrap code, like directly into the brains of their ships, uh, the loyalists manage to draw up some battle lines. They demand surrender. Uh, hails are flying back and forth as our threats. Uh, we talked about this before, but the well, uh, well, Jason, we we were actually just sort of talking um, amongst ourselves that <laughs> we, we we've done we've sort of made it up to where I think we needed to make it up to. Um, like the sort of where are we here? Page uh, 40. 45. Yeah. yeah. Page 45 is sort of where we picked up with Stephen Austin uh, last week. And we really did go down the rabbit hole on this, man. We talked about, yeah. So, so I think we're good, dude. I, I think we can pick up next week um, at the battle of hive Ilium. I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, Abaddon is coming out in full force and pulling punches. Yeah. I mean, Abaddon never pulls punches. So here's an interesting tidbit before we, before we go, um, and listeners, feel free to take a look at this too. On page forty-six, I don't know if they if this was meant to look this way because of the lighting, but you have a Sons of Horus Contemptor dreadnought, but he's painted in blue. I think that's the lighting. Okay, I'm gonna hope that's the lighting because last time I checked, there there isn't like a stealthy blue Sons of Horus. <laughs> like, It'd be entertaining. Yeah, and especially Contemptor too. That'd be real creepy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no. Um, so listeners, thank you so much for listening in. Hope we er, we hope uh, we've educated. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments, questions, feel free to Facebook message uh, the Remembrances Retreat. Leave a comment on the episode. If you like something, tell us about it. If you did didn't like something, tell us about that. Um, you know, we love to talk about this stuff, and if we can focus in on something that you really enjoy, who? Um, so, yeah. so uh, thanks for listening, and uh, talk to you guys later. Sounds good. I'm just literally trying to figure out how to tell Craig to fuck off. Right? Well, fucking well, Craig. I really just need to like figure out a way to code him, just so like we can type in the chat, Craig, fuck off. <laughs> Uh, all right. He'll survive.